very familiar words. This is, uh, you, you know, we, you, how many times have you read the words of the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem? How many times have you studied that and how many times have you heard sermons on it? Here I stand before you and this is the 28th time that I preach basically from this very familiar passage. So you can imagine that during this whole week I've been asking the Lord to enlighten me in ways to the message here that maybe I haven't seen so very clearly. Because the last thing I want to do is stand before you every Palm Sunday and preach to you exactly the same Palm Sunday sermon that I preached last time. So we'll see if the Lord is going to answer that prayer because that's been my prayer all week, that this would be a very, very special. And it's one of the reasons we've approached John like we have over these last months, that this would be not just another Easter, not just another celebration, but it would be an Easter that we would always remember and hold close and dear to our own hearts. An Easter that would really help us in, in very dramatic and definite ways to get through the next year before we do this again. Uh, really in ways that we would honor God and our Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit maybe in a manner that we never have before. Maybe in a manner that we never even thought about before. That it would lead to a greater, not just this rehashing of old things, but it would reader, lead us all to a deeper and greater understanding of the things before us. That would certainly and truly impact and change our lives. Because it fundamentally changes us. So let's read. See what the Lord has in store for us. John chapter 12, verse 12 and following. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the, the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now those, or among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat 
falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I read a little bit further than we have listed here in our bulletin because I changed track a little bit a day or two ago. Uh, but again, you know, familiar words that we've been over and over uh, again through the years. And if you're visiting, I know there's a few people here visiting this morning. What we've been doing is we've been doing an in-depth stu uh, in study of the uh, Passion Week of Christ uh, for the last many weeks. Uh, and, uh, and what we did is we skipped over Palm Sunday, and we've actually gotten all the way to the point. Last week, we left Jesus' dead body in the tomb. And so we're kind of backtracking a little bit in the gospel according to John because of this Palm Sunday uh, as we are. So I want you to understand something. And that is this. Is there, this is described as a large crowd gathering. And let me just tell you something. This was a large crowd like you have never seen a large crowd. Passover was a big deal for Jewish people. Now, all the Jewish people, whether they lived in, in, in Israel or Judah or not, they were required by law to come for Passover and the other Jewish feasts that took place through the years. So you had people literally traveling, sometimes for many days, just to get there to participate in this celebration. It wasn't something they, that they were required to do if they, that was just an option to them. They were required by Jewish law to be there for these feasts. So you had people coming from all over the Mediterranean. 
the Jewish historian, and this is around 65 B.C., so 30-something years after this, estimated that the number of people that attended Passover in Jerusalem that year was 2.7 million. How many people do you think were at the Super Bowl last year? A measly 70,000. What I'm saying to you this morning is this, is the kind of crowd that was gathered here in Jerusalem for this, for this Passover is, is almost incomprehensible to you and me. We have never seen any of us, none of us have ever seen anything that comes close to this in our entire lifetime. Nothing. It was not just a small gathering of people. John's statement that it was a large crowd was no exaggeration whatsoever. Again, it was a large crowd like you and I have never seen. Ever. The word of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead has passed from one person to another, so almost to the point that it was like everyone in all of Jerusalem has heard something about this. And they come, and, and, and they're hoping to see the man who, who actually raised Lazarus from the dead. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So what is the significance of palm trees or palm branches? We call this Palm Sunday, right? Well, during the intertestamental period, that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. During the days of the Maccabees, a new feast was instituted amongst the Jews called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of the Lights. What you and I know today is Hanukkah. And one of the prominent elements of that celebration is the waving of, guess what? Palm branches. So this was not anything that was new to them. Now can you imagine what the palm trees looked like around Jerusalem after this was over? You have to wonder if there was a single palm frond left on a tree anywhere. Again, can, can we even begin to imagine something like this? It's like everyone in Jerusalem wanted to see the guy who raised this man from the dead. The word spreads that he's coming. He's on the way, he's on the road. And the masses stream out of the city just to get a glimpse of him.
the reception that Jesus received was a royal reception indeed. Something that he was worthy of and something that he was in fact far more worthy of, worthy of far more than this. And it's just a measurement of how fickle people can be because the strange thing about it, the crazy thing about it is we understand that a good many of those people, most of those people, as a matter of fact, who were praising him as he came into the city would be calling for his death within a matter of days. I mean, this very crowd that welcomes the coming of the king by the end of the week is demanding that the king be executed. Why is that? It's because Jesus didn't turn out to be the king that they wanted. See, in their mind, the king that was, uh, was promised by God that was going to come was going to deliver them from things like Roman oppression. Like this would be the final time when they would be able to throw out the Romans and be done with Roman rule that they've been under now for a long time. Jesus didn't turn out to be the king that they thought that he was going to be. To help put things in perspective, we understand that this is not the only reception that Jesus received in his lifetime. Remember the reception he received when he was born in, in Bethlehem. The angels and the wise men and other people. We see this reception, but just let me say to you this morning that, that, that there is a reception that's coming in the future that is going to make this look like diddly squat nothing. Jesus is gone for now, but Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, we will rejoice like we have never rejoiced before in our whole lifetime. And we will do that from one or two perspectives. Either we will be here in the world when he comes, and when he comes, we will know that he's come. There will be no doubt in our mind, this is the coming of Christ, period. We will see him as he is. What kind of reception do you think Jesus received when he ascended into heaven? That was probably pretty grand and pretty glorious then, don't you think? Returning back to the Father. But I would say that even that will pale in comparison to the greatness and the grandness and the glory that he will receive when he finally returns here to this world to lay absolute claim to it and everyone that is in it. That is truly his. That day could be today. 
would be kind of appropriate for Jesus to return on a Palm Sunday, now wouldn't it? That makes a little bit of sense to us. I mean, what better day would it be for him any year to come than on Palm Sunday? The people were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They are designating royalty to him. So what were they asking Jesus to save them from? We would like to think that it was to save them from their sins. Not likely. Certainly for some. For true believers. But for the masses. Perhaps some of them were rejoicing because they believed that he would be the one that would deliver them from Roman oppression. They had been under Roman rule now for a long time. And it was not fun to be under Roman rule. Maybe some of them believed that uh, he would deliver them from the bur burdensome life of legalistic Phariseeism that they were subjected to. The truth of the matter is as things begin to unfold during the week, it becomes very obvious that people just in general did not understand, have a clue about what was going on. Notice here that Jesus does not deny that he, in fact, is the rightful king of Israel. He doesn't, he doesn't suppress the, the, the masses. He doesn't tell them, be quiet, don't say that. Jesus has been alluding to these things for a long time, and it should have not surprised any of the 11 how things transpired in regard to him over the past weeks. But the fact of the matter is, they are going to be in shock very soon. It's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to believe it. And it's still entirely another thing to actually experience it. I 
I was thinking about this the other day. How do you take things like this and apply them practically to us, where we're living today? Now, there are a lot of things going on out there, a lot of things being said about the United States as being this wicked and evil place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, immoral and, you know, this, that, and the other, and, make, you know, want to establish rights and rules for everybody and, you know, you know, that sort of thing. And even though we claim to be the land of freedom, then we don't really have freedom. Sounds like borderline insanity to me. But we need to understand that that's a lot of what the world out there around us believes and thinks today, that the United States is wicked, evil. But we understand this. So one of the reasons that things are set up the way they are is that our, the, the founding fathers and mothers of this nation, for the most part, were Christians. You understand, that is what makes the United States the greatest, the best, the most wonderful place to live that has ever existed on earth since the Garden of Eden. The place where we have God-given rights understood and respected. Have you ever wondered why in the world, even though it was the popular thing in those days, that our founding fathers decided that they didn't want a king? It's because they knew that there was one and only king, and his name was King Jesus, not some mere man or woman. Let me just tell you this. That there are a lot of people out there that are trying to argue that Jesus is wicked and evil and his church is wicked and evil and you and I are wicked and evil and we don't care about people and this, that, and the other. But let me tell you, that is so far from the truth, it's ridiculous. The truth is actually the opposite. We don't have a king because our founding fathers had a king and his name was Jesus. And our founding mothers, too, by the way. Don't be ashamed of that. Christianity is what has made America great. Without Christianity, America would not be great. It would be just another place. It's obviously not perfect either, right? There are injustices that take place in this land, but let me tell you, as, as much as that happens, it's still better than anywhere else. Jesus is our king, because let me tell you something, there is no man that is fit to rule over you and I other than he. Now, we know the rest of the story, and we, we understand this, that Jesus, you know, through the week that follows after this triumphal entry, 
And he's tried and tortured and crucified and he's dead in the tomb. In just a short point or a short period of time, he will be resurrected and after another short period of time, he will ascend back into heaven. Can you imagine the reception that Jesus received when he returned to heaven? You know, as great and grand as this one that we've already talked about in Jerusalem, it's nothing. And he's already experienced that, being received back into heaven after he's accomplished all that the Father had given him to do. How, how, how much did the Father welcome the Son back? And let me say this, and we always talk about this on Palm Sunday, that, that, that this, this is the first coming of the King, but there's another coming of the King that's coming that's yet future to you and I. what we call the second advent or the second coming of Christ. Could be today. Then we're going, nah, I don't think so. But let me tell you, what the Bible teaches is he's going to come when we least expect him to come. <laughs> so if we're saying, I don't think it's going to be today, that might be the very day that we ought to think maybe he will come. I want to read from Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. Let us take heed to these words. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will come a time when every person will acknowledge the kingship, lordship of Christ. The timing of that, however, is critical. 
In other words, it'll happen eventually, but it's important when it actually does happen because the diff the that determines whether you're heaven-bound or hell-bound. The difference in acknowledging the lordship, the kingship of Christ now and waiting and doing it after God brings you to your knees is the difference between salvation and damnation. Jesus' triumphant entry on that day was merely a prelude to the second coming. How many people do you think will be there? Every person that has ever breathed air. Billions, maybe trillions. Some of those to the glory of God, and some of them not. He indeed is the king of glory. He has been the king of glory for all of eternity. He still is the king of glory. He will be the king of glory for the rest of all eternity. There is no sense of the rest of eternity. He has always been king and Lord. He will always be king and Lord. There's never been a time in all of eternity that he has not been. But as Paul says, he loved you and I enough to, in a sense, step out of that role to a degree for time to come and be us. I know some of you wonder if anyone has ever loved you in your whole lifetime. Maybe some of you have reason for wondering that. Maybe you're not the most lovable person. And no one comes to my mind when I say that. I'm just saying it. We can doubt many things in our life. Sometimes you doubt how much other people love you, especially when they don't want, you, don't want to do what you want them to do or think they ought to do, that sort of thing. But let me just say this to you this morning. Don't you dare ever doubt Jesus' love for you because he has demonstrated it to you in a way that it simply cannot, must not, shall not be denied.